We're going to dive in this morning into the biblical arc of mission in the New Testament. And uh, I spoke a few weeks ago on the biblical arc of mission in the Old Testament. Um, and what we looked at was um, our vision statement, what that means to us, making Jesus known to everyone everywhere. Amen. So that's what we're about. That's what we're doing. And we've got four priorities around that. And uh, one of them is mission, reaching out with the good news, both home and away. Now, last time I spoke, I uh, got a little bit of criticism uh, because I mentioned broccoli. And uh, some of you might remember that. And I said, you know, sometimes we need broccoli in our diet. And this might be a little bit, a bit of a a broccoli message. And some of you came up to me afterwards saying, you're giving broccoli a bad name. And you can't do that. You can't do that. And uh, really what I mean is we're we're trying to give you a balanced diet here. We're trying to give you um, a a theological depth as well as an encouragement. And if you put all our messages together, if you put the two messages I've spoken today and a few weeks ago, if you put the one big church thing together and with Billy's message last week about what it means to be on mission today in our world we begin to discover that we have a a broad but deep foundation for what we're doing as a church. And so we want to give you a healthy diet. You know, having the occasional takeaway is fine, but you need a balanced diet. And so that's what, what we're doing here with this. And so if we want to look at it another way, I mean, this is another broccoli type message, to be fair. But if we want to look at it another way, we can say what we're going to do is a little bit of heavier lifting. Now, you can tell by my body that I know a lot about bodybuilding. Maybe not in the way that most people use that phrase, but I certainly know how to build. It's taken years of investment to get my body to look like this. I mean, it's cost a lot of money. I want you to know. It's cost a lot of money to do that. But when I, when I do go to the gym and I see the serious guys there, you know, I go because they've got a nice coffee shop attached to it. But there's, uh, there are these serious guys there who are, you know, who are just really super strong and, and all this, a bit like Emmanuel, you know, they're, they're, they're tough guys. And, and they're doing that. And, and just hearing them, they're like, right, today I'm going to target this muscle and everything. And what they do is they don't just lift what they're used to lifting. They lift a bit heavier. And then they'll go back to what they're used to lifting. And every now and again, they'll lift a bit heavier, and then they'll go back. What they're doing is they're growing a particular muscle. So what we're going to do in these messages, and I've got a lot to get through this morning, so I hope your turkey or your chicken or whatever is not in the oven at home, because um, the smoke alarms are going to go off maybe this morning. But actually, what we're trying to do is say it's a little bit of heavy lifting. We need to stretch ourselves. We need to stretch our outlook and our, our, um, our thinking on this. Now, remember... I mentioned last time that when we're looking at a biblical theme, we are standing back as though we're looking at a bigger picture, the pattern, the kaleidoscope idea. If you look through the kaleidoscope, you don't just look at one segment. You stand back and you try and get a picture of the whole. Whereas most of our our preaching, most of our teaching, most of what we do in, in growth groups, we're looking at a segment. We're looking at one little piece of that pattern. But what we're going to do is step back, and we're going to try and get an overview of what's going on in the New Testament. Last time, we looked at God's wounded heart in the book of Genesis. We talked about Abraham. We talked about Israel as a signpost nation to the other nations. We looked at the prophets, and we ended with Jonah. You remember that? Your brain's still hurting? You're okay. And so today we're going to launch in and say, well, how does the opening of the New Testament begin? In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. I mean, that sentence there we could spend a few weeks on just alone, couldn't we? The beginning words of Matthew is that this is that that you would have been waiting for. That whole Old Testament, this is it. Ladies and gentlemen... The genealogy of Jesus, who? The Messiah, the son of who? David. He's come. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Matthew, uh, towards the end of his gospel, says, and this gospel in Matthew 24, this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
See, Matthew starts his gospel, we're talking about the king. And he, throughout the gospel, he talks about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom, he mentions the kingdom of God in one way or another over 50 times in his book. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of times. What's he doing? He's saying this is the kingdom. This kingdom that is going to spread. This gospel of the kingdom. And he picks up there in in verse 1 of Matthew 1 that this is connected back to Abraham. Now, Matthew's readers were primarily Jewish people. Matthew was a Jewish man. God saved Renounced his tax collecting. Don't you wish that every tax collector who got saved renounced tax collecting? But that doesn't happen. And so, but he renounces his corrupt life and he writes this book to the Jews. And they would know that in verse 1, because he's mentioned Abraham, he's harking back to the foundational promise that we looked at last time in Genesis 12. Verses 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you, what, a great nation, and will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who curse you, and ever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The very first opening verse, the opening stanza, when Matthew's sitting down and he's saying, Lord, how can I communicate to my friends and and the people that are going to read this letter? How can I communicate to them that the mission of God, the promise of God is carrying on swiftly now? It's got momentum. Jesus is the King of Kings. How can I do that? And he says, I know my opening sentence. He doesn't wait. He doesn't go through all the the fluff of how are you, how's it going, are are the kids well, or all these things. He's straight in there. This is it that you have been waiting for. And so he sets the scene, and onto that scene comes John the Baptist. We all have a bit of John the Baptist, don't we? The last Old Testament prophet. What? What? How does that work? He's in the New Testament. But if you look at his life, if you look at his preaching, if you look at the way he conducted himself, he's the last Old Testament prophet. It's not that Italian prophet, Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. But when I, when I first read it, I thought he was Italian. Because, <laughs> you know, I came from a council estate up the road. And so someone said, we're going to turn to the book of Malachi. And I thought, uh, Malachi. And I, I looked at him and thought, surely he's saying that wrong. You know, I didn't know it was uh, Hebrew and all this sort of thing. I didn't know anything about that. And so in my mind, all these years later, he's still the Italian prophet. But the, he's not the last Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is. And if we look at what his ministry is about, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but you can look my notes up online or watch this back. In Matthew 3, Verses uh, 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. See, Matthew's making sure in his material, he's linking back to the Old Testament. He's linking back to the mission of God. And it goes on. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make the straight paths for him. And John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, welcome to church. And he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I can tell you that these stones of God can rise up children for Abraham. Their axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes the one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Ah, hallelujah. The kind of preacher we'd all flock to. Gained attention. But you see what's happening here. Matthew is saying the mission of God is so important that don't think that just coming, and remember he's talking to Jews, don't think that just coming from Abraham's covenant that you are safe. Because John the Baptist can raise, uh, he's saying God can raise up even stones as children of, of Abraham. And if you're thinking this is it, he said there's going to be a bigger kingdom than we can imagine because God is doing something missional. And so he presents himself like an Old Testament prophet. And if we were to dwell there a little bit, we would see what his mission or his message was. Primarily repent. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. Prepare. Jesus is coming. They didn't know it was Jesus, but he said one who is coming. He's challenging injustice, you brood of vipers. He's challenging the injustice and corruption of his day. One more powerful is coming. Who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. And with fire. And he goes on. And there's going to be judgment. And he's going to judge you. He's going to sort you out. See, John the Baptist believed that the kingdom that would come would overthrow the political oppression of the day. And he believed the mission of God was going to be one that released people from political oppression, released people from slavery, released them from all of those things. But he got it wrong. As he hears, he's later imprisoned. You can read this in Luke 7. He's later imprisoned. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. Remember this. And he says, are you the one? Now, I've heard lots of sermons about that. I've preached a few on that over the years. And, and, and really, they go around doubts. You know, doubt your doubts. Don't doubt Jesus. Jesus is good and everything. But it wasn't just that John was doubting. It was just that John was saying, what I'm seeing is not what I expected God to do. And so what I need you to do, Lord, is to confirm for me that you are actually doing the work that I'm in prison for. You know, he's like, I'm suffering for God. I'm struggling. And he's confused when the judgment doesn't fall. What does Jesus tell him? Look around. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. There's healing, there's joy, there's salvation. Of course, God's mission is happening today. And then John's life ends, but overlapping him, is Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus. What does Jesus do? I've subtitled that the already but not yet, and I'll explain in a few moments what I mean by that. See, Jesus' own disciples even struggle with this kingdom. They struggle with what is God doing? What is God's mission? What is God about at this time? Have you ever struggled with what God's doing in your own life? But in the big picture, The 12 disciples, they're like, hey, it's great to be around Jesus. It's fantastic. But when's he going to go and march on Rome? When when is he going to overthrow things? When is he going to sort things out for us? And Jesus begins to describe to them what the kingdom of God is like in parables. See, we have an already but not yet kingdom. Jesus' presence says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now surely if Jesus is present, the kingdom's come, right? Well, it has. But does that mean the kingdom of God is here? Well, not quite. What? Now you're ready to have, you know, sit down, buckle up. I'm going to show you some pictures to try and illustrate this. A diagram, actually. And uh, if you, don't try and draw this if you're taking notes. It's in my notes. Um, but the first thing is this. The prophetic expectation. What the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to seeing in their old age, and don't mean their age as in like, oh gosh, they got really elderly. I mean the age in which they are living in, the age they were currently seeing. They saw the power of sin, death, evil, and Satan. But they knew that the Messiah, when he came from heaven, would bring the knowledge of God, love, joy, and justice. It would be the age to come. But they saw them as two distinct things. Theologians would call those dispensations. 
that actually they would see a, a time frame now, but then Jesus would come and it would all change immediately. But actually what they're seeing is two realities. And we see in our second diagram what actually happened. In the old age, in the Old Testament, in their time, you had the powers of sin, death, evil, and Satan. Jesus comes. That little red cross there shows Jesus coming and dying. There's a little green arrow then going up showing the resurrection and Jesus' ascension back to heaven. And then the blue arrow is the Holy Spirit coming down. And what we have then is an already but not yet time where the time frames actually overlap. Where they're not distinct, they're not two separate things, they're overlapping. They are already and not yet. And so we live in an age where we have the power of the Spirit's renewing work. We have the age of the Holy Spirit. We have the age where God is still at work in the church. Now why do we have that overlap? Why is the kingdom not established in the way that the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist thought it would be? The answer is because God still is on mission. God still has a plan for salvation. God has a plan for your unsaved relatives, your backslidden children and grandchildren, your mothers, fathers and aunts, your work colleagues in your your place of work, in your colleges, in your schools, wherever you are, God has a plan for their salvation. And we live in that time frame. I'll unpack that more in a bit, a few minutes. I'm going to move on from that diagram, but you can look those up in my notes. I put them on especially because Vicky said, if you're going to show drawings, please make sure they're on your notes. So, uh, is that all right? You don't have to fit that in your notebook. You're right. No, so. Jesus, though, says, initially, only go to Israel. Says in Matthew 10, verse 6. Remember, this is the mission of God. Are you keeping up with me? Are you all right? Am I explaining this clearly enough? Is anyone bamboozled or ready for lunch now? Okay, because I'm, I'm just finishing my introduction. And so... <laughs> Isn't that sweet, darling? They think I'm joking. Anyway, so in Matthew 10, Jesus says this, which has confused scholars a little bit, but having seen those diagrams, it might help us. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. says, do not go amongst the Gentiles or enter any town of of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. What? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Wow. So Jesus' initial instructions were go to Israel. Why? Because in the Old Testament, Israel is what? The signpost nation. The chosen nation. Still is chosen by God. God's covenant and God's plan for Israel is still at work, even though we don't understand everything that's going on. But Jesus says, go there first, because they need to hear the kingdom and the gospel message before anyone else. Later, he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places in the feast of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. And this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to who? All nations. And then the end will come. What's happening here? The prophets were seeing two successive events. First, the call to Israel, and then the redemption and incorporation of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. So Jesus is fulfilling the mission of God by going to Israel first, explaining to them what the kingdom is, sending his disciples out. And when they reject the message, he then sends them out and says, go everywhere. Go everywhere. This kingdom of God must spread. My friends, we are still living in the go everywhere. We're still living in we need to make Jesus known to everyone everywhere. We're living in that second circle after the resurrection. The spirit has come. We have to go everywhere. Isn't that exciting? Oh dear, it's not that exciting, Keith, but it sounds good. And then we get Jesus' manifesto, Jesus' description of what this mission, what this kingdom looks like in Luke chapter 4. 
he reads in the, in the tabernacle the scroll, and it says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is, when it's handed to him. And what's interesting is when they would do readings in the tabernacle, everything was on these scrolls, long scrolls. It wasn't like chapter and verse in your Bible, and it wasn't like your Bible app where you have these little, you know, I don't know what you call them, revolving things. What do you, no, not Rolodex. You know on your apps, are they Rolodexes? When you scroll through and you're looking for the number, come on, young guys, help me out. You're looking at me and go, we have no idea what we're talking about. I'm going to have to introduce you to some Bible apps or something, aren't I? You know when you go on the internet and you have to register for a website and you have to put your age in? You ever have to do that kind of thing when you register for something and ask your age. And for some of you, you're young, it's on the same page. <laughs> and some of us, we have to whee, go around the wheel. And we, we just, you know, nowadays I just flick it and I let it spin wherever it lands. That's when I was born. <laughs> you because know, it's like, you know, if you, sometimes it's fun to go back there. They actually think people had computers in 1899 because you can, you can go all the way back on these things. Anyway, those kind of things. It's not like that. It's not indexed in the same way. And so when he opens the scroll, what they would do is whoever would read would read a passage, whoever was called on to read, and then they would explain it and sit down. They would... Cr- Um, roll the scroll back up at that place so the next person would come and read the next sentence so when it says Jesus found the place he opened it up and by God's providence God's planning this was the passage he read now if you think the scrolls are like you know massively thick and really heavy for him to open up and say and it found the place in other words his eyes fell and that was the next sentence to be read and he reads this the spirit of the Lord is upon me wow what a thing to read because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in other words the very thing that John the Baptist asked him are you the one Jesus says remember what was read and now you're seeing what was read and this has been described as the uh, Nazareth the, the Christ manifesto we're going to hear a lot of manifestos this year in this nation, lots of promises. But Jesus is saying, this is what it is. But what Jesus then does, remember our diagram with the two times overlapping? What Jesus does, if you go back and look from where he's reading in Isaiah 61, he stops in the middle of a sentence. You see, John the Baptist said, he's coming to judge you. John the Baptist said, he's coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand, he's going to separate you. Because that's what I want to happen. And so many prayers I hear Christians praying is they're praying winnowing fork prayers. Lord, judge them because I'm better than them. But actually, you're no better than them. You just have the salvation and the grace of God in your life. Sometimes we need to look at the cross and realize it's not just a place of freedom. We need to look at the cross and realize what our sin did to Jesus. Because the winnowing fork prayer won't depart from our lips. And Jesus stops halfway through the sentence. See, he says, if you were to read there in Isaiah 61, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his judgment. That's what the end of the sentence is. Jesus stops. Why? Because he is saying it's now but not yet. The kingdom is here but it's not already here. It's coming but it's not yet. And look at the time frame. He says, the year of the Lord's favor which is an expansive amount of time compared to the day of God's wrath. See, some of us live our lives and preach as though there's going to be a year of God's wrath and a day of God's favor. And Jesus says, no, we're now living in this time frame. You're now living in this time of now and not yet. It's come, but it hasn't arrived. It's here, but you don't have the the complete reality. Now, we know when he returns, my friends... When he returns, the kingdom of God will be complete. There'll be something about it. But right now, you and I are still praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're still praying, Lord, establish your kingdom. And wherever you go, you are called to establish God's presence and kingdom. Jesus, we discover, is on God's mission. I'm giving you a lot of scriptures this morning, but you need to know I'm not making this up. And it says in John 5, uh, 19, it says, 
truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. What's the big missional message out of this? Jesus is copying God. He sees God doing something. He copies it. But that's not just him looking at that instant. That's him looking back to before creation and seeing what God has done and seeing how God's mission has permeated every action of God. And he says, I'm doing that. Here's a theological sentence. He is God, sent from God to do God's will. I'll let that one land on your mind a little bit because that... When I was writing out, I thought, oh, my word, that's heavy. Can people take that? No, but we expand our hearts by faith. We're not going to understand that. We expand our hearts by faith. So, Lord, I want to receive that. And so we find that Jesus is doing what God's done, but Jesus is also seeking. It says in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3? When God went into the Garden of Eden, and we touched on this, God, the moment of God's heart breaks and he says, Adam, where are you? What's happening? God is seeking. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is seeking. Why is Jesus seeking? Because God is seeking. What's God seeking? Lost souls. What's Jesus seeking? Lost souls. Why? Because he and the Father are one. Wow. Wow. Someone better say hallelujah because I want to take notes. (laughs) He's come to seek and save. How does he do this? Moving swiftly on. He tells parables. If you read through the Gospels, the parables will tell you what the kingdom of God is, why Jesus has come, what, uh, uh, what the end times will look like what is the heart of God. This year, it's not an accident that we're saying in our growth groups, we're going to study, we're just going to go through every single parable in the, that Jesus spoke. Why? Because we need to understand how big the kingdom of God is, how big his missional heart is, how important that is for us to get hold of. And so he teaches parables. But then Jesus performs miracles. There are only 37 of his miracles actually recorded in the Gospels. Only 37. I mean, what a letdown. You know, some people get upset if their preacher isn't raising the dead every single year, every single week in church. You know, Jesus only did 37 that were written down. Now, we know that Luke says, if, if all of Jesus' miracles have been written down, surely there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. So why have we got the miracles we've got? Because they're pointing to the mission of God to bring healing and to bring release and to bring resurrection. My friends, we've got those. Next year, God willing, in our growth groups, we'll look at those. And then you have the death and the resurrection, birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I wrote in one of my books that I wrote, sorry for quoting myself, but, you know, well, why not? (laughs) The resurrection proves the virgin birth and the death of Jesus. The three are intertwined within the scriptures. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the virgin birth is a myth. If Jesus is not virgin born, there is no possibility of his resurrection. For why would God validate an imposter? If Jesus did not die, he would not have been fully human. Therefore, the resurrection would not have occurred. The resurrection is one leg of a very important three-leg stool that faith is rested upon. The fact that we believe that Jesus is risen, there's historical evidence not only within Scripture but outside of Scripture that attest and attain to that fact. And the resurrection, therefore, gives you five things on your mission. It builds trust because you know what Jesus promised is true. You can trust him. It creates a new mindset. You say, how does that create a new mindset for me? If you just think about death, you treat death differently to all your friends and work colleagues. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death isn't pleasant, but it has no power. 
And so we, we have a different mindset. We know that Jesus is returning because of the resurrection. If you didn't rise from the dead, if I could take you to Israel today and say, there's the tomb of Jesus, his body is in there, be foolhardy to turn around and say, he's coming back one day. He's coming back because he's risen and he's ascended. He's coming back for you too. So that changes the way we live. Because our hope isn't in our economy. Our hope isn't in what happens day to day. Our hope is in what's happening in the future. future. And it changes the present. Changes the present because Jesus is able to send the Holy Spirit to fill us and baptize us. And before he ascends to heaven, we have the great commission of Jesus, the great missional statement. But if we understand what, we've, what, we've, what I've tried to share up until now, you'll understand that this commission is the summation, it's the summary of what Jesus has been doing for the last three and a half years with the disciples. And you know those words, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Now here's a theological writer. I'll read you this because it'll do us good. It's an old quote, but this is what he says. The last command of Christ, that great commission, is not the deep and final ground of the church's missional duty. That duty is authoritatively stated in the words of the great commission, and it is of infinite consequence to have had it so stated by the Lord himself. But if these particular words have never been spoken by him, or if they had been spoken and not been preserved, the missional duty of the church would not be in the least affected. The supreme arguments for missions are not found in the the, uh, use of specific words. It is the very being and character of God that the deepest ground of missionary enterprise is to be found. What does that mean? It means if for some reason the last chapter of the book of Matthew had been destroyed and we didn't know that Jesus had given us that commission, we would still do the mission of God because the command is implicit in everything that scripture teaches. And sometimes we say, our mission is there because of Matthew 28. No, your mission is there because of Genesis 3. The mission is there because of what God did throughout the Old Testament and what he did throughout the New Testament and what he's doing now. But thank God we have those words. Thank God we've got them. We knew that Jesus was clear on his intent. And so we come, let's skip forward, we come to the church Now the big question, are you all still all right? I don't know what I'm asking, I'm going to carry on for a bit. The big question I'm always, uh, not always asked, but I'm asked more frequently, particularly now, at the time when there's war in the Middle East, is surely the church replaced Israel? No, we didn't. We are what the Bible says, and Paul says in Romans eleven seventeen says that some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, speaking to the church in Rome, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. What is he talking about? He's saying you are grafted into Israel. Why? Because God's got a covenant with that nation. God has covenant with it. So you're grafted in. But what does that actually look like to us? Well, I need to show you a picture. I couldn't find one of an olive tree. But this is where we used to live in Palabora. This uh, up in Limpopo, up in the northwest, uh, uh, northeast corner of South Africa. This is where we were missionaries. And just at the end of our road was this little fenced off tree. And it was called, you can't read the board, it was called the Freak of Nature. The other picture I have is of Barbie and I underneath that board, and I didn't want you to think that we were the freak of nature. <laughs> so you've got that one. And what it is, is two trees. It's a, a, a Mapani tree and a Marula tree. And coming out of the side of the uh, Mapani tree is a Marula tree trunk. That's why I've put there that junction. And they're two separate trees. And they think that what happened... 50, 60, 70 years ago, is an elephant was walking through, munching on some uh, uh, leaves and things, stood on some seeds, crushed them together, and they both grew up from the same root. They grew from the same root. 
And so, but the interesting thing about those trees, that if, if you know anything about um, arborism, and I, I know nothing, I just, uh, but I can tell you this is what they look like. The Mapani tree and the Marula tree, although coming from the same root, have distinct bark and distinct leaves and distinct fruit. But they have the same sap. Wow. So what does this tell us about us and Israel being grafted in? We don't replace, but we are parallel. We're parallel. And so we begin to understand that the mission of God has gone beyond just the nation of Israel and has come to us. And so what is our mission? What's my mission as a Gentile pastor? I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Messianic believer. Is found in Romans 11.25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Until they've come in. So what does that mean for me? I'm not speaking about the Israel, Israel's mission. I'm not speaking now about what Messianic Jews' mission is. What is my mission as a Gentile pastor? And your primary mission as a Gentile church is to reach Gentiles. Because when the full measure of the Gentiles come in, remember we're talking about mission, when the full measure of the Gentiles come in, Israel's heart will be softened. And they will turn back to God. So we pray for the peace in Jerusalem, but we preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you understand? Why? We're not replacing Israel. We're parallel to Israel. We are becoming the mission of God in reality at this time. Now, if that's blown your mind, that's okay. Don't worry. Go and read my notes. We soften Israel. We boldly go. I love that phrase, don't you? Star Trek. Here we go. Romans 15, Paul describing not just his mission, but the mission of the church. The greatest missionary there ever was. He says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Amazing what's happening. And we can see Paul's journeys. We can see what the church was doing. We can see Peter in Acts 10 going to the Gentiles. We see all this amazing stuff. But then the book of Acts itself seems to end on a cliffhanger. It just ends. Doesn't tell us how Paul died. Doesn't tell us what happened next. Doesn't tell us all that stuff. Doesn't tell us what happened to Peter. But we know from church history that Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. Why does it end on the cliffhanger? We don't know what happens. It's as though Luke, who is writing that letter, considering the mission of God, is saying, here's the baton. He's saying to his readers, this is where the church has got to. This is how the church has spread through the known world at this time. Now it's your turn. It's as though he's reaching across the ages from when he penned those letters and reaches the baton over. And all you have to do is take your hand and say, I accept the mission of God." I accept that what God's doing because I'm living in the period where I'm called to make Jesus known to everyone everywhere. I'm going to skip over that. You can go and read that. The mission of God for the church must carry the truth of the gospel that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's our primary mission. That's not the only way we get inroads into conversations, but that's our primary mission. Someone put it like this, it's not about doing missions. It's about being mission. It's about having, you know, if you were a stick of rock, or if I was a stick of rock, you, do you know what I mean by a stick of rock? Go to the seaside, you used to get these, these long sort of, well, sticks of rock, I don't know how to describe it, just long sweets. And if you break them open, it would have the town's name written inside it. It was really clever how they do that. So we used to live in Eastbourne. We used to buy people gifts. We used to, when we were over in furlough, we used to take back sticks of rock to people in the villages. Say, so, you know, I believe this. If you crack it open, you'll find a word inside. Really? Yeah, crack it open. Oh, it's so sugary. And I'm learning to read. This is fantastic. It was brilliant. And we'd do that. We'd say, it's amazing. And I remember taking one to a church and saying, look at this, look at this word. But if you are broken open... What's written in your life? What's written there? Is it written, 
oh, I want Sunday school in church. I want a good sermon. There's got to be good worship. I want my knees met. Feed me, feed me, feed me. Or does the rock in your life, if you're broken over and say, I'm on God's mission. I'm called to do something bigger and better with my life in where I work, where I serve. Sorry, I got excited and was preaching there for a bit. I'll calm down for about 10 seconds. The nature of, the servant nature of the church, our mission, we are here to serve. The mission must be motivated by genuine compassion. The justice-promoting role of the church. And when we talk about promoting justice, it's not as the world sees justice, because people are calling for all kinds of things under the banner of justice that are not in line with God's justice. We need to understand what God's justice is to reconcile people to him. And we are a prophetic community. When we begin to proclaim the kingdom of God, we will be opposed. We will be opposed. I was reading the other day, not a, um, a Christian uh, article particularly, um, and it was talking about the Western world. And it was saying, what are the most, in the West, we're not talking about in, in, in what we call the 1040 window, we're not talking about Russia, we're not talking about those places where Christians you know, in North Korea are persecuted. Talking about the Western world, where there is a passive persecution of Christians. The top three Western countries, would you like to know what they are? According to an analysis, United States of America, the United Kingdom, and Canada. If you live in one of those three nations, guess what? You do. You live in number two, you will experience a passive, if not passive-aggressive, persecution at the moment. Why? As soon as you say, a man and woman, that's Christian marriage. As soon as you say, I stand for something that is different to you. And you're allowed to hold those beliefs. The law protects you in holding those beliefs. But in practice, people will persecute you for holding them. They'll persecute you for saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. People will say, no, 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 no. Every way leads to God. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's so ridiculous. Even I know not all roads lead to Sainsbury's. (laughs) My GPS tells me that. Well, all roads lead to Aldi. Well, of course they don't. You know, Aldi's over there. That one's over there. And you think all roads lead to God? It doesn't work in the natural. It won't work in the spiritual. Come on, my friends. We can chuckle about this. But we do live in an age where people are opposing the mission of God. Why? Because we are a prophetic community proclaiming the kingdom has come and is coming. Oh, my friends. Isn't it a great time to be alive? I'd rather be alive than opposed than alive and no one care what I do. For years, the church in the UK, no one has cared what we do. Now they care. Why? Because the gospel is salt in a wound. The gospel is light where they want to keep it in the darkness. And my friends, you're on that mission. Isn't that exciting? So I didn't want to do that mission, Keith. I didn't know I signed up for that. The moment you asked Jesus into your life, whatever you thought was happening happened, you got saved, you got forgiven, you got eternal life, and you were commissioned. You're commissioned at that moment to go forth. And then, my friends, I'm only going to speak for another 15 hours. (laughs) Are you all right? The Holy Spirit in the church, I'm I'm almost done. The Holy Spirit sets forth the power for that mission. Jesus promised us, didn't he, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria till the ends of the earth. And you can read in the book of Acts about the mission, how they didn't go from Jerusalem. How they got comfortable. How it was nice. And so what does God do? He raises up Saul. They stone Stephen. Saul didn't stone him, he just stood holding, you know, he was holding the coats but gave approval to it. They wouldn't have stoned him without Saul's approval. You need to realize how the pharisaical culture was working. Now, God knew what he was going to do with Saul, turn him into Paul. He was going to become the great missionary. God knew that. Why did God allow that to happen? So the church would scatter. And you read there in Acts chapter 6 that they scattered. And they went beyond their boundaries. They went to Judea and Samaria. And then you have Paul saying, I want to go where no one else has gone. To the ends of the earth. 
See, the mission of God, you are on it. He will do it through you willingly or you will do it unwillingly in the willingly way, if that makes sense. You'll end up finding yourself witnessing to people. Oh, I don't like witnessing to people. And then you end up witnessing some, getting all embarrassed and stumbling over your words. Oh, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then you did it. You go, I did it. I did it. I can't believe I did it. Didn't want to do it, but I did it. You know, when you start your testimony, you'll say, I don't want to offend you by telling you what Jesus has done for me. You're going to offend them anyway. But we live in a culture where we do it politely, don't we? We like to be offended, but politely. So don't be a loony tunes, but share the message. See, why does the Holy Spirit come? You know, we could look at all the functions of the Holy Spirit. We could say, oh, he does this, gives gifts, he heals, he sanctifies, does all this. But Jesus didn't promise all of that. That happened as part of the Holy Spirit's ministry. But Jesus said he's coming, so you'll have power, boldness to do this. Acts chapter 2, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they preach the gospel with power. Acts 3, a healing takes place. Acts 4, they get persecuted and they're told, don't you go preaching the gospel anymore. And you read there in Acts 4 and they say, Lord, we've been in jail. Lord, it's been terrible. Now consider their threats. Lord, what are you going to do? And you read there, he fills them again with the Holy Spirit and they go and preach the gospel even more boldly. My friends, the Holy Spirit is your empowering spirit. It's not the spirit there to give you a comfortable life. It's there for the power. And so how do we do this, my friends? I'm going to wrap this up. Everyone says, amen. I know it's been a marathon message. How do we do this? Where do we begin? How do we take what the Bible's saying? How do we take what Billy said to us last week? How do we take what we looked at in one big church about our mission with our stickers? Have you got your stickers still? Yeah, I've got it on my phone there. Oh, it's, it's there. How do we take that and make it real? How do we make theology alive in us? I'm going to give you one of the simplest tools I know on how to witness. And we're going to give out, Barbie, can you just pass those? Uh, There'll be a box coming around in the next minute or two with cards. You can take one or two of these. We've got plenty. One plus one. What does one plus one mean? I want you to, on the reverse side of that, you can write your friend's name. And the only condition I can put for this, I know some of you will be praying for friends and family who are far away. And you can continue to pray for them. But your friends who live within driving distance of this church say, oh, because it's got all nations written on it. You know, it's going to be. But anyway, you write your friend's name. And then what you're going to do is this, my friends. The simplest thing you can do. You're going to pray for them once a day. When you open your Bible and it's there, when you look on your fridge door, it's there, whatever you're going to do, you're going to pray for them once a day. And then... You're going to talk to them once a week. I would suggest, if you're not talking to your friend once a week, they're not really your friend. I'm not talking about those sort of friends. Oh, I haven't seen them for 50 years, and we pick up as though, as though nothing had changed. Of course everything's changed, you know. So you talk to them once a week. You make a commitment. If they don't talk to you, you're going to ring them and just say, Hi, how are you doing? And you're going to say to them, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? And some of you are going to be like, Oh, that's, that's a bit too far, Keith. That's it. They don't even know I'm a Christian. Time to come out of that spiritual closet. And then you're going to meet them once a month. Once a month for a coffee, for a meal, however you get together after school. Some of you say, oh, I see my friend more than once a month. That's great. But the minimum commitment is once a month. And then you're going to bring them to church once a year. And by bringing them to church, that means you can go to your growth group with them on your missional week where you're doing some social things. Or you can bring them to an Easter service to see a baptism. Barbie was telling me yesterday, there's already one of her work colleagues is saying, I want to come and see people baptized in your church. I've never been to that. I'm from a Roman Catholic background. Am I allowed to come and watch? Oh, I don't know. Of course they are. Bring them to church. Once a year, bring them for Christmas. Now, Let me tell you, I've tried this before. This is not new to me. It'll be new to you. You can take one or two of these. You might have more than one friend. I mean, God forbid that you've got more than one friend, right? And we'll have these out for you. And I I did this in in Essex a number of years ago. And uh, we had a carol service. And uh, I I preached a very simple gospel message. And uh, loads of people put up their hands. And so the people at the back... Uh, of the church who were getting those new believers packs ready and all that, they were feverishly getting more ready because we didn't have, have enough. I mean, it wasn't like hundreds of people, 
but it, it exceeded our expectations. So I went to the back to meet with everyone, say, hi, how are you, and everything else. And one guy said to me, said, I had to respond to this, and I said, why? He said, my friend is driving me nuts. I said, why? He says, he keeps telling me I'm his plus one. And I said, well, what's he doing? Every time we go out for a drink, he's saying, is there anything you want me to pray for for you? And when are you coming to church with me? And I said to him about March, because we launched this in the January in that church. I said to him about March. I said about March. I said, look, if we're still friends, I'll come at Christmas. And every time we went out drinking, he would say, can I pray for you? And don't forget, you're coming to our carol service. He said, and I got here. And I said, by the time I got here, there was nothing else left for me to do but give my life to Jesus. Will you pray for them once a day? Will you talk to them once a week? Will you meet them once a month? And will you bring them to church once a year? One plus one. Dead simple. Dead simple. It's so simple, even I can do it. Barbie's doing it. She doesn't even know she's doing it. Well, she does know she's doing it. Can you do that? If you need more of those, let us know. Can we pray? The worship team are going to come. I'm going to land the plane. There's much more on my blog if you wanted to look at some, some of that. Uh, a little bit more can we pray as we commission you to go on your mission next week we've got a guest speaker we're going to turn our attention around discipleship a little bit more in the next month or so but can we pray and maybe you can think now my friend I've been looking for a way what you're doing by praying for that, that friend once a day is you're softening the ground you're softening the ground that you're led with compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mission in the Old and New Testament. We thank you for what you're doing. Lord, I know I've, I've tried to pack a lot in this morning. It's been a bit longer than normal in terms of a message. I know that. But Lord, what has been of you, let that land. Let that be settled in our hearts. And Lord, I pray now as, as we hold these cars and we're thinking of our mates, our friends. We're thinking of those we don't want to go to an eternal damnation. We're thinking of those we want in heaven with us. We're thinking of those, Lord, who you've put in our pathway, in our school, our college, our work, in, the, in, in our community, in our, in our coffee hour, whatever we're doing. There are people we come across. And Lord, we pray for them now. You would soften their hearts. You would give us courage to ask them, can we pray for you? You'd give us courage to keep meeting, keep talking, to make sure that relationship is healthy, to give us courage to bring them to church. Lord, that just one soul at a time, we would see your kingdom come across Reading and the surrounding areas. One soul at a time, Lord, we would see you work miracles across this town and region. One soul at a time, we will see your kingdom come and your will be done. And so, Lord, I commission all nations to go and to share the good news of Jesus, to start praying and talking to their friends, to start lifting up people, lost souls, because, Lord, you're seeking. God, you're seeking. And Jesus, you came to seek and save the lost. Help us, Lord, to seek them also. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.